right now as we speak, as we are gathered here, there is a man less than two and a half miles down this road. I just wanted you to know. He's two and a half miles down this road. He is right now turning left off of State Road 52 onto Chicago Avenue. He is slowly walking past the shell station that is there. And he will walk down that road and when he comes to the fork that is in that road, he will bear to his left and turn onto Osceola Avenue. He will continue to travel down Osceola Avenue until he comes to the VFW post 6180 on the right-hand side of the road where he will there enter in and meet with his friend Rod and they will begin to talk about things and reminisce over the Vietnam War. How do I know this? I don't know this. I can't know this. There is no way in the world for me to know this. There is no way that any natural man can possibly tell what's going on two and a half miles down the road. I said no natural way. We are limited to the very near sphere of our own existence in knowledge and in understanding of what's going on. Walls divide me from even seeing what's going on. What, 20 feet from here in that other room? I can't tell you what Aubrey and Rowan are doing in there. I can imagine what they're doing in there. But we are limited to the immediate scope of our vision and of our hearing. Now, some will say, well, we have satellites and we have cameras on all of these poles all around the cities now. And there are these drones that are flying around. We hear about those all the time. Well, I assure you, none of those existed in 33 A.D. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts chapter 4 as we continue in our study of this text looking at and seeking to understand a little bit from the Scripture for the past several weeks regarding the sovereignty of God in the cross of Christ. We have considered the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus a few weeks ago in our Easter services. And we're kind of looking back and seeing from this passage the understanding that was gained by the apostles regarding the things that took place because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them. You remember we mentioned that prior to the outpouring of the Spirit, they didn't seem to quite understand what was going on. Even though Jesus told them plainly that He was going to go to Jerusalem, that He was going to be crucified, He was going to be killed, and that He would raise, they are going, huh? What? And they didn't quite get it. And even after He was raised from the dead, it was like, what? I don't believe you. He can't be raised from the dead. And then they saw Him, and they still didn't even believe in some cases. 
But yet when the Spirit of God was outpoured upon them, as we read in the book of Acts chapter 2, they got it. They understood. They went out and preached boldly the truth of God, the power of God, the glory of God. And here we see in this prayer in Acts chapter 4 how much they really understood now as opposed to before the Spirit was poured out. Because we read in their prayer in verse 25 as they pray about the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, when he said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against Thy Holy Spirit servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Thy hand Thy purpose predestined to occur. They got it. They understood. They realized that all of these things were happening by, as we saw in verse 28, under the heading of what was being said by these men in their prayer. They saw and spoke of the power of God, speaking of His mighty right hand, His hand. They saw the purpose of God, His plans from all eternity, and they saw the predestination of God bringing to pass those eternal plans. The God of the Bible, and I will not grow weary of saying this, the God of the Bible is a sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God doing as He pleases in the world. And He does work in the world. Now, From there we went on and considered the whole context of what they said in verse 28 being what we talk about when we talk about the passion of our Lord. His death, burial, and resurrection. Because that's what they're talking about in verse 27 when they say that there were gathered together in this city against thy holy servant Jesus, Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, Herod and the people of Israel. That's what they're talking about. They were against Jesus, but God used it for His glory and for our redemption. And what we're seeing then is the sovereignty of God in that whole passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our first stop was the sovereignty of God over the sending of His Son from Galatians chapter 4, that Jesus had to die to redeem us and that God gave His Son at the exact right time. He sent His Son to us at the exact right time. And then we went on to see last Lord's Day from John chapter 11, Jesus' sovereignty ordering the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We talked about how He purposefully stayed behind and then He purposefully went and He purposefully raised Him from the dead, bringing to pass the great miracle that caused such a stir, enabling him to come down into Jerusalem on that donkey in his triumphal entry and forcing the hand of the Pharisees to have to do something. If we don't do something, we're going to lose everything. So that was Jesus working that out by His sovereignty. Now today, we come to another area that I want to study regarding how Jesus' sovereignty is seen in the bringing to pass His death, our redemption. And I want to ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, 
Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. As we look today at Jesus' sovereignty involving the Last Supper. Jesus' sovereignty bringing to pass, ordering, involved with what we commonly call the Last Supper. And I chose to look at uh, Mark's Gospel because there are a couple of things that are said here, but we will also look at uh, John's account and Luke's account as well. But here we read, if you look down to verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, that was uh, two of his disciples out of the twelve, and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare for us there. Let's take this apart a little bit. We're going to see several areas that show the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus as divine God dealing in this matter or bringing to pass these events. The first one is what we can call the indispensable location. The indispensable location. Notice he says to them, to these two disciples, go into the city. What city was he talking about? Well, we know from Scripture, even in this text, what city was being spoken of. And we'll talk just a little bit about this. The location is known from the context. Verse 26 tells us, And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This was the night that Jesus was arrested. There in the Mount of Olives, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The very night that Jesus was arrested. They did not get in to a 15-passenger Ford van to drive somewhere. They walked. It could not have been very far. The Mount of Olives was just outside of what city? Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives was just outside of Jerusalem. So the location was the city of Jerusalem. It could not have been any other city. Another indication is that we know from the context of this passage and other passages that the disciples and our Lord Jesus were in the town of Bethany. And so Bethany was only about a little less, some believe, a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Now, I grew up and was raised on Long Island or Long Island. I was born there, raised there, and I tell you, Long Island is a long island. It stretches 110 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean. No matter where you are on Long Island, 
If you say, let's go to the city, there's only one city that you're talking about. And I'm sure that that's the case for those who live in New Jersey. They're not talking about Newark. They're talking about New York City. Let's go to the city. And it was the same around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish universe. And so when Jesus said to them, go to the city, there could have been no other city that He was talking about. Now also, the location had to be Jerusalem, not only from the context, but from history and from prophecy. I want to ask you to turn to Matthew 23. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. Now, I can't take the time to go into how important Jerusalem was to the people, but I tell you that Jerusalem was the center of their lives. It was where the temple was located. I hope you all realize that there was only one place where sacrifices took place in the Jewish religion. Only one place. And that was the temple. And the temple was in Jerusalem. They had a lot of synagogues around the countryside. And they had a lot of people that would meet there on the Sabbath day. And, And they would do all their worship there in those synagogues. But if you were going to sacrifice, if it was time for a sacrifice to be offered, you went to Jerusalem. That's the only place where they offered a sacrifice. Jerusalem was the center of their life. Here in chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, look down to verse 37. Here's our Lord Jesus weeping, as it were, over Jerusalem as He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. That's history. That's where it took place. The prophets would go there. They would stand before the king. They would tell the king to repent. You know, you read in the Old Testament all these They would come before the king in Jerusalem. They'd tell him, you need to repent. You need to turn back to the things of God. And they weren't always well received. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a reference to him and his triumphal entry. But here he is speaking of that city, the city of Jerusalem. It was the place the prophets went. It was the place where they were martyred. But also, not only history, but a more recent prophecy. Look back just a couple of pages since we're here to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Down to verse 17. That's all we really need to look at is just these few verses here. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem... He took His twelve disciples aside by themselves 
And on the way He said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn Him to death and will deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and crucify Him. And on the third day He will be raised up. Now notice He says clearly, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Understand that Jesus was not killed or murdered in some obscure location. He was not killed off somewhere in a lonely, desolate, deserted place. It was here in the center of the Jewish world, Jerusalem, where Jesus was raised up before men that all would see Him. And that all would know what was going on. You remember even the account of the two men walking on the Emmaus Road as they spoke to Jesus on the way. Remember how they said, oh, all of these things have taken place. Are you the only one here that doesn't know about this? I mean, it was everybody knew what was going on because it didn't happen in Nazareth. It didn't happen in Bethlehem. It didn't happen off on some lonely place in the desert. It happened in the center, the heart of the Jewish religion. It had to be in Jerusalem. Jesus had to be crucified in Jerusalem. Not only because of its central location, because, but because that's what He said. <laughs> he said that's where it would take place. So now go back to Mark chapter 4, 14. Mark chapter 14. Jesus had to die in that indispensable location, Jerusalem, the city of David, before all of Israel. And I want to consider now from this passage and from the Lord's Supper, the incomprehensible foreknowledge of Jesus. The indispensable location, it had to be Jerusalem, but now His incomprehensible foreknowledge. Look again at verse 13. And He sent His two disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow Him. And wherever He enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So here we have Jesus telling them, go this two miles. Walk two miles. And here's what's going to happen. And we see from this His foreknowledge of the place where they would meet. Look at verse 15 again. He'll go to this one and he'll show him a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare the Passover there. Jesus tells them that a place would be ready. How did he know that? How did he know that a place would be ready? Some would say that he set it up beforehand. That Jesus kind of set it up before. Now think about it though. And quite honestly, it could have happened that way. Jesus met and dealt with a lot of people all the time. 
People were constantly thronging Him and around Him. And He did know people. He certainly knew people. People wanted to be near this guy, right? You always want to be near the guy at the center who has all the attention and the power so you can be with him. It's like, you know, like actresses and actors today. They want to be around Justin Bieber, whoever else it may be. They want to be there on the scene. Now, this is far more important and far more holy, but it's still human nature and it's still true. People wanted to talk to Jesus. I mean, think about it. He did have friends. Lazarus was his friend. And we remember those who would strive to come and to see and to hear Jesus preach and teach. And so it's possible that in the course of his life and ministry that he knew the one who owned this house and said to him on the side, because we don't have everything written about our Lord that actually took place. So it's possible that he could have said to him on the side, get your guest room in order. That's where I'm going to have the Passover this year. It's possible. But it's not likely. We don't see anything of that recorded in any of the Gospels. Jesus did just not involve Himself in these types of Issues. This would have been, as we might say today, a job for the deacons. And they tell the deacons to go and get the room ready. And so, that's what we see. Jesus was always focusing on prayer, always focusing on His relationship to the Father and His time with God and preparation for His ministry. Those were the things that Jesus focused on. Not stuff like this. So this is far more likely the case that the sovereign and divine God moved the heart of this guy who owned this house and had this guest room to have it ready for Him and for His people without Him even knowing it. Just go and He will give it to you. Like the one who owned the donkey upon which He would ride. If they ask you why you're untying it, tell them that the Master has need of it. And they did. And so here too, it is likely that the Sovereign God worked in the heart of this one who owned this house and owned this guest room to have it ready for our Lord. And don't miss the fact that here in the text it does say that the place would be ready and the disciples go and they found that it was the case. Verse 16, the disciples went out, came to the city, found it just as He had told them and they prepared the Passover. It was just as Jesus said it would be. Now we sang a hymn a little while ago from the Trinity Hymnal about whatever takes place in your life, it is by the sovereign hand of God and whatever God says and whatever God does, it's good. Whatever God says is right. Whatever God does is right. And here's the thing. Whatever God says, Jesus, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Scripture, it is never wrong. It is never in error. 
It is never going to be a mistake. If there is a mistake or an error in your Bible, it is not trustworthy. We ought to throw it out and scrap Christianity. There is never going to be a mistake in the Bible. God does not make mistakes. Jesus did not make a mistake. Jesus told them to go. They went and they found it. Wow! How? How did they find it? Just as He said. And that's very, very important for us as we go by the Bible in our lives that we can trust everything that the Bible says. Everything that God says. Everything that Jesus says is trustworthy and dependable. And we'll see this further as we progress in the text. So even if you want to think that all oh, it was just a setup, the rest of it can't be a setup as we see further evidence for our Lord's sovereignty. So that was indeed His knowledge of the house, His knowledge of the place where it would take place. Now let's see His knowledge of what would happen. In verse 13, He tells His disciples to go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow Him. What? There's a gonna, first of all, He doesn't tell them where in the city. He doesn't tell them what street. So they don't really exactly know where they're going. Go to the city. Now, I told you a few moments ago, I lived 30 miles outside of New York City. That's where I grew up. We used to drive to the city. I used to drive to the city often. From one island to the other. Are you kidding me? A man's going to meet you with a pitcher? This city was huge. It wasn't quite as big as New York, but it wasn't that small. You had a million people here. At least. It's a big place. And so he tells them, go in there and you'll find a man carrying a pitcher. How did he know? He was telling them before they even started walking. And they had about a two-mile walk to get there. And when they got there, at the exact time that they got there, in whatever place Jesus had preordained, there would be a man carrying a pitcher. Follow him. Okay. At that exact moment, in that exact place, they would meet a man carrying a pitcher. I also want you to think about the guy carrying the pitcher. Do you think he was carrying the pitcher all day? <laughs> I will be carrying this pitcher until a couple of guys get here. And I'll keep carrying this pitcher until they show up. And I'll stay right here because that's where God, Jesus told me to. No! It was all working together by the sovereign hand of God. And the only way, the only way that Jesus could have known that there would be a man carrying a pitcher almost two miles away is because He is sovereign God. Omniscient, all-knowing God. And He knew that at the exact 
moment that the disciples would likely, let's say, turn a corner, there's the guy carrying the pitcher, and they would follow him to the exact place where they would have the Passover supper. This is God ordaining these things to come to pass. Look at Luke 22. In this parallel passage, down in verse 9, well, we could, I'll tell you what, let's back up to verse 8. I almost gave this away a little few moments ago, but I wanted to wait till we got here because it tells you who the two disciples were. In verse 8, and he said to Peter and John, so these are the two disciples, Peter and John. Don't you love it? Peter and John. These are the, these are the disciples. These are the guys, the leaders. Peter, fiery Peter, bold Peter, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And these are the ones that Jesus sent ahead to accomplish this task. So he says to them, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And they said to him, well, where? Where, what are we, where are we going? Where, where do you want us to do this? We don't have any place to go. We don't have any place to eat. And then he says to him, or to them, Behold, when you have entered the city. And what I want to see from this text, as well as the two disciples who did it, he says to them, Behold. That is a term of surprise. It is a term of immediacy. It is a term that indicates, the language indicates that it happens suddenly. Suddenly this will happen. And it will be a sign for you. Many of you have heard me teach and preach about the uh, Magi that came to uh, Jerusalem. Remember, they came from the east and they come to Jerusalem at the incarnation, at the birth of Christ. And they are there talking to Herod. And Herod says to them, he's supposed to be born in the city of Bethlehem. And then it says, and they left Herod and lo, the star was before them. Now, a lot of people on the Christmas cards show the Magi walking through the desert all the distance following the star. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that they saw a star, they left to go to Jerusalem, and then after they left Herod, lo, And behold, there was the star again. And then it showed them exactly where they were to go. So this is a similar type of a a startling, sudden sign. Behold, you will find a man carrying a pitcher. It will happen suddenly. The point is that Jesus is telling them exactly what they would see And he was telling them before they even left to go to the city. And it happened just as he said. Now, this would be like my opening illustration. If I could say to you that there's a man walking down Chicago Avenue and he's going to bear left on Osceola Drive and he's going to go to that VFW Lodge. I could not possibly know that. 
I cannot, as a man, tell you what's taking place a couple of miles away. But our Lord Jesus, as God, was able to tell them what they would find. Now, this really opens up all kinds of things in regards to what God knows, even about the everyday lives of men and women. God knows. People understand, please listen, Jesus was not a psychic. He was not a magician. He was not a con man. He was God. And as God, He knows everything. And as God, He knew that as those disciples walked into that city, they would perhaps, like I said, turn a corner and behold, there was a man carrying a pitcher. Only God can know that. Only God is capable of that. And that is what Jesus did. Now, what does that tell you about Jesus? It tells you He's God. Only God could do it. Jesus did it. Jesus is God. Why isn't it that the Mormons get this stuff? Or Muslims? Or even the Jews? Jesus is God. The divine Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. Jesus knew exactly what would happen before it came to pass. Isn't that what God says in Isaiah? When He says that you know that I am the true God, that I am really God, I am the one who tells you things that will come to pass before they happen, and then they come to pass exactly as I said they would, that shows you that I am God. This shows us that Jesus is God and that He is ordering these things. He told them where to go. He told them what would happen. And it happened exactly as He said it would. Now let me mention this as well before we move on to the next aspect. The disciples followed what Jesus told them to do. Right? I mean, Jesus tells Peter and John, go into the city and you'll find a man carrying a pitcher. And Peter and John didn't go, what? How on earth is that going to happen? Let's just go down to Joey's place and we'll, we'll just set it up over there. We don't know where this pitcher guy is. We'll just go down to my friend Joey's or Luigi's and we'll have the, we'll have the Passover at his house. The disciples followed what Jesus told them even though they didn't know exactly where they were going, even though they didn't know exactly how it would happen or how they would find this guy carrying a pitcher, they did what He said. Here's my point, folks. This is much like our lives as Christians. We do not always know what is in store for us. But we follow what Jesus tells us regardless. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't know everything about our lives. But we have His Word. 
And His Word tells us that we are to strive for holiness. Seek to live godly lives. We are to, as a church, go by His Word. We are, as a people, to live by His Word. We don't know where that will take us. We don't know what that will mean. But we do it. We follow. And, I believe, with all of my heart, just as these disciples found it, just as Jesus said, we too will find it just as Jesus promised. That when we close our eyes for the last time in this life, we will open our eyes to new life. And we will be with Him for all eternity. Through all the hardships and all the trials that we go through in our lives right now, we still follow. And ultimately, we will be blessed by our Lord with exactly what He promised. So we move on from here. Not only was the Lord familiar with the place where they would go, and not only was His knowledge of what would happen real and extraordinary, I want to see one more thing. We also find in this account, actually I want to see two more things, but quickly, we find in this account His knowledge of Judas's heart. Jesus knew Judas's heart. For this, I want to go back to Mark's Gospel and chapter 14. Here in Mark 14, Look down to verse 17. And when it was evening, He came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me, one who is eating with Me. And they began to be grieved and say to Him one by one, Surely not I. And He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with Me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's a powerful statement. He knew what was going to happen. And he says of the one who betrays him, it would have been good or better if he had not been born. There's a lot of people who don't believe in hell. They are those who believe that when the lost people die, they are obliterated and are no more. There's just nothing. Nothing for them, no afterlife for them. They have to ignore a lot of Scripture. They have to ignore Luke 16 when Jesus talks about Lazarus and the rich man. And they have to ignore such statements as this. How could obliteration be better if he had not been born? It would have been the same. But if it would have been better for him not to have been born, what he's saying is that he is going to go to eternal damnation and hell because of his betraying the Son of God. And Dante, in his work, The Inferno, has right there in the last lower pit of hell... Satan holding two people. One in one hand and one in the other. In one hand, he has the Pope. And in the other hand, he has Judas. The one who betrayed Jesus. There are consequences to sin. There's no such thing as obliteration. 
All of us will live eternally. All of us! Christians are not the only ones who live eternally. All men live eternally. Their souls live on after they die. And for so many on that broad road, that eternity is hell. And much worse than this life. But for the Christian, we go to glory to be with God. Much better than this life. This is what Jesus is saying about Judas. And the point we want to see here is that He knew His heart. For this, look over to John 13. John chapter 13. We see in verses 16 and following, our Lord is talking about the Lord's Supper. And we want to see the first thing about Him being betrayed is that it was prophesied. The first thing about Jesus being betrayed was that it was prophesied in Scripture. Jesus here in verse 18 says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. In other words, he knew Judas's heart. He knew that Judas was not a born-again Christian in our terminology today. That he was just a church member, a church attender. He was not saved. I know your hearts. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He is quoting from the psalm. Psalm 41 and verse 9. It's almost a direct quote from what is written in the psalms. So, he knew what would happen even at this table. Look at verse 20 here in John's Gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives me, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. There is an element here of those who are saved and those who are lost. And he knew Judas's heart that he was not one of those who was saved. Now, as God, Jesus knew his heart, He speaks about this in the first part of verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. He speaks of the ones who God has given him. But now the disciples began looking at one another and they're at a loss to know which one it was. And the one who was reclining on Jesus' breast was John. And Simon Peter said to him, ask him who it is. And Jesus answers in verse 26, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan had entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose He had said this to him. You see how the disciples just didn't seem to get it? Jesus says, the one that I dip, He gives it to Judas. Do what you do quickly. Is He the one that's going to betray Him? It's right there. We can see it. We know it. And that it goes on to say that indeed, after receiving the morsel, He went out immediately and it was night. Judas went 
to betray Jesus. Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And Judas had to betray him. Because it was prophesied in Scripture and because once again this set in motion the whole process of the Pharisees coming to arrest Jesus and then crucify Him. This is what set that in motion. His betrayal. Jesus told Him to do what you have to do. Jesus knew exactly what He was going to do. We read on even further. Verse 30, Receiving the morsel, He went out, and it was night. When therefore He had gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is talking about His death. Jesus is talking about the fact that He's now going. And this all happened with Judas going out to betray Him. Now we must move on quickly. Go back to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. And I'm going to look at one other element of the Lord's Supper known by our Lord Jesus. He had the knowledge of the place where they were to go. He had the knowledge of what would happen regarding the disciples going into the city. He had the knowledge of Judas's heart. And notice, and don't miss, he had knowledge of what was about to happen. And what was about to happen? He was about to go to the cross. Look at what's going on here. Verse 22, And while they were eating, He took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is My body. And when He had taken the cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is that? That is what we commonly call the Lord's Supper. That is what we celebrate when we remember His death. Jesus told us to remember His death. And this is where He tells us to do it. In His Lord's Supper, in what we call the Last Supper or the, the Lord's Supper, this is what we do. We, we break the bread and we have the cup. We have the, the bread and the cup and we remember His death until He comes. We do it all the time. Now, we know, we know what happened right after this. Don't we? We know. They didn't know. The disciples to whom He was talking didn't know what was about to happen, even though He kept telling them. But they didn't want, they didn't expect it. They didn't know that in just a few hours Jesus was going to be betrayed by Judas and that He would be arrested by multitudes. They didn't know that was about to happen. But Jesus did. Let me say, let me point it out to you. If 
that did not happen, this would be meaningless. What would the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, mean if Jesus was then stoned by the Jews? What would the Last Supper mean if Jesus was killed in a horrible chariot accident? It it wouldn't mean anything. It is the fact that as sovereign God, He knew exactly what was going to take place in the next few hours that gives the Lord's Supper meaning. His broken body and His shed blood on the cross for us. So don't miss His sovereign omniscience right here as He tells the disciples, this is My body, this is My blood, signifying that He was about to go to His death on the cross. If it didn't happen, this would have not meant anything. He was bringing it all to pass. He was bringing it about. I mean, let's face it, even if it happened a couple of years later or weeks later, it wouldn't have the dramatic significance that it has as God knowing that in a few hours He would be betrayed, beaten, He would be scourged, He would be mocked, and He would be crucified. Pierced through His side, dead, and buried. He knew what was going to happen. And this is what gives this Lord's Supper great significance and shows that as sovereign God, He was bringing these things to pass. All of this leads to our indisputable conclusion. We've seen the indispensable location to Jerusalem. His incomprehensible foreknowledge of all that took place in this Lord's Supper. But it all leads to our indisputable conclusion that He is God. He is sovereign God. Jesus knew everything that was about to take place. He knew that Judas was going to go out and betray Him. He knew that Judas was going to go to those Jews and tell those Jews, I know where he's going to go. He's going to go over to the Garden of Gethsemane. I know what's going to happen. I know it. And so can't you hear those Jews now, the Pharisees? Aha! Now we've got him. Now we've got him. We've got one who's betraying him and he's going to tell us exactly where we can find him and exactly where we can arrest him and put an end! to this Jesus. And can't you just imagine their elation as they were passing by the cross and hurling abuses at Him and mocking Him and saying, Ha! You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself now and we will believe. They were mocking Him because they got Him. They got Him. They got Him. Now, Acts chapter 4. This is exactly what the disciples were praying 
as they quote from that psalm in David, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Verse 26, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city were gathered together against the Holy One, Thy holy servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Thy hand, Thy purpose, predestined to occur. Jesus knew what Judas would do. Jesus knew what the Jews would do. And Jesus knew that ultimately it would be to God's glory and our redemption. And He was ordering it all for our good. Thy hand, Thy purpose, Thy predestination, it was all at the hand of our Lord Jesus. He used their hatred for Him to bring about our redemption. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to die for our sins. And these people, these Judas and the Jews and the Romans were used by God to accomplish our redemption. Jesus was in control of everything. This is the sovereignty of God in the cross. That God, our Lord Jesus, ordered all of this for us. He knew Judas' heart and what Judas would do. And He used it for our redemption. May God bless these truths to our hearts today as we honor Him as the sovereign God in all aspects of our redemption through His cross. He was in control. He is in charge. He is the sovereign God. And that is why we worship Him as God. Let's pray.